0: How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Waterfowl 365 presented by PTBN. I am Chris Adams, your host. If you're not following along with us on social media, check out BTBN on the Facebook or Instagram. Um, if you want to get yourself a paperweight of a duck call, check out Unstable Calls. That's myself. They're not too bad. But uh, yeah, if you want to get on that waiting list, let me know. Today we have another call maker that I had the opportunity to meet a couple weeks ago down at Callapalooza. And uh, he's a great dude. and. Led me to a few different uh, call makers and interviews, so he's been making them this year himself, so he's another new guy, and uh, pretty excited to bring him to you. Without further ado, Mr. Tyler Baker. Tyler, what's going on, brother?
1: Oh, not much, Chris. How are you?
0: Oh, not too bad, man. This is a uh, second day of uh, doing a little call making, and, uh, you know, it's been nice. Finally getting back in the shop.
1: Yeah, it's a. Uh it's a rough one right now with it being hot here shot time has been limited for me
0: bro it is 91 degrees here i uh i've still been getting up early even on days off to uh try to get a lot of turning in before it gets super hot and then move inside and work on uh you know work on tone boards and tuning and stuff like that when it's real hot oh
1: i get that we've had rain for the last four days so we're high 80s but 100% humidity so it's like breathing a glass of water right now
0: Ugh. yeah we uh, we hit 90 for the first time this week so yeah the shop conditions are a little unbearable which I'm sure a lot of call makers can relate to oh I'm sure it seems like my prime turning is like February to June and then I'll uh, I'll feel like it a little bit again in the fall but man once summer hits once the dead middle of winter hits it's like it's too cold to be out here. If I have to have a hoodie on and it's still cold, like, that's no good. Or, like, I have a cut-off sleeve and freaking shorts on now, and, like, everything just sticks to you when it's all sweaty.
1: Oh, yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm the same way, you know, after duck season. Um, I usually hit it pretty hard and then kind of back off during the summer when it gets too hot, and I'll pick up a little bit in the fall and try and knock out a few more before Susan comes in.
0: Yeah, yeah, dude. I don't I don't blame you at all. I feel like it's uh, pretty... Consistent. I was just talking with the boss lady, and I was like, The next house we get, we have to, like, a shop is a must. (laughs) Like, living in a neighborhood, just having a garage, like, this, it works for now, but man, a shop would be so much nicer. She wouldn't be mad at me for getting dust all over the car all the time.
1: No, I'm in the exact same boat. I've got plans already in my head of what my shop's gonna look like, how many big garage doors. Half of it's going to be for auto work. The other half's going to be my full wood shop. I've got it, got it planned out when the day comes.
0: <laughs> See, we have a two car garage, and it was when we moved in. It was like, all right, you have the option of parking your car in here, or you could set up your side of the garage for the shop. And I was like, well, clearly it's going to be the shop, you know. <laughs> you, so I haven't parked inside of a garage for like six years because it's always been a freaking shop.
1: Hey, that's that's the way to do it. You don't cars cars don't need a bed every night
0: that's right that's right man so uh you just got into this call making thing man here in what the last uh ten months nine months something like that
1: actually I'm a little over two years I just I don't do a lot of posting on much um,
0: well hell man my, my
1: bad no it's all good I bought my lathe January 1st 2019 I had the day off of work for New Year's Day and I was scrolling through my email and I saw a coupon from Harbor Freight and I finally said I'm gonna do it so picked up a lathe, learned how to turn. Easter of that year, I bought a flat jig, and Easter of this year, I got my custom jig done.
0: Nice, man. Well, congratulations to that man. That's a it, that's a big. It was step. a long
1: time coming. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was getting to the point where it was flat jigging a call was deterring me from making calls because of how long and drawn out that process was.
0: It uh, it makes you beat your head against the wall. Trust me
1: i can only imagine how many of you done flat jig uh
0: 350 ish 300 to 350 i don't know exact are you ever gonna get a
1: jig or are you just gonna let that be your trademark
0: man it, it's kind of become my trademark it always seems like i have plans for it but i just never do it and now with the podcast in the last year and stuff like everybody knows like that's my thing is i flat jig and uh Let me tell you, dude, my hands just get so worn out doing it all the time. Like you said, I I flat jigged two calls today um, from like 10 o'clock to 1 o'clock or so, and that's probably about all the flat jigging I have in me for the day after that. You know, you just kind of beat your head against the wall.
1: I could never get that much into it. I'd get like halfway through in like an afternoon or an evening and then put it up and have to come back to it the next day. I could never, I think once or twice when I really needed to get a call done, I I pushed through and got it done and tuned in a day. But most of the time I took two days on it. Just, I get so used to blowing it a
0: certain way, I had to walk away for a little bit to blow it normal again. Oh yeah, yeah. That's definitely something I like to do is finish it up, let it sit for the night and then come back and adjust the next day because like you said yeah you 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 get so set in the way that you're blowing it i'll also pick up a call off the shelf and you know any random call trade call or whatever and just run it and be like oh yeah this is what i'm this is the duck you know that because you just get that sound stuck in your head from flat jigging you're like i don't even know what i'm listening for anymore
1: I think the first about eight months, I worked up a flat jig. I kept like three extra calls in my shop from other people just to have something to clear my clear my palate with. Almost.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's such an important tool that you know. It's just trying to figure out what the heck you're going for, man. Yeah. So you started two years ago. What what uh you know what was the collection? Were you a collector before that? What's what's the backstory? Well, I,
1: I really wasn't um when i first wanted to learn to call i joined call Nuts. so i've been in call Nuts since 2016 mm-hmm. um so gotta watch a lot of people that came up in your group uh, you know the the rise of michael meredith and the reigns of the mike Stelsners and i got to see a lot of that um and there was one gentleman that is not he does a lot of live turning on facebook you know you pay a little extra you get to watch your call turn And when I first joined Call Nuts and I was just in the duck calls, I would sit there and watch the ribbons fly for hours. I was so mesmerized by it. Um, And I've always worked with my hands. I work in construction now. I thought it was something I wanted to do. At a couple different points in college, I had the money saved up to buy a lathe, and then something came up and it went somewhere else. So finally, after finally settling down here in Memphis, I had the money they were on sale at Harbor Freight, and I jumped in with both
0: feet. Yeah, you know those Harbor Freight lathes, man? I freaking still use mine to this day. And I've had, I don't know, maybe three of them over six years. And, uh, dude, they're, they're the best bang for the freaking buck. Like, you know, you could oh, upgrade absolutely. to a jet, but it's like they work so well, and they're so freaking cheap. Like, uh, I had one shit out on me last year, and it was like, Alright, well I'm going I have a harbor freight Like three miles away I was like "Up, oh, Time to go get a new wave today Like up and rolling Like 30 minutes later
1: Yeah I bought mine um, And I, I worked with it For a little over a year Until um, I knew it was something I was truly going to stick with uh, And then I started Keeping an eye on Marketplace and Craigslist And uh, I found a guy About three hours From me selling his 1221 With everything To actually do calls He had chucks And mandrels And collets And centers And I bought everything off of him but the turning tools because I had no need for those. I've already had carbide at that point. And so, um, about a year ago, I switched to the 1221, and I'm telling you, never having to change a belt is the most amazing thing ever.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Like, that is definitely the only real downfall. (coughs) Good night. Oh, good thing I got this water. No beer today, right? (laughs) Mm. Okay, so you saw you joined call nuts you kind of got into it um like what what's the the duck hunting history man like what's your uh like so how long you le- doing
1: it yeah i grew up wing shooting so i was born in iowa and grew up pheasant hunting so wing shooting has always kind of been my passion uh 10 years old we moved to georgia learned to deer hunt kind of get into turkey hunting um was watching, you know, the old school duck, not duck dynasty, but duck commander videos like before they had the A&E show, watching them and thought, man, that's so cool. I want to get into it. But I had no one around me that duck hunted a whole lot. Um, and I get to college and one of my first roommates is like, dude, I love hunting. Let's go. Uh, took me on my first hunting trip. First duck I killed is a hen bufflehead on Lake Guntersville in Alabama. And from that point on was hooked um got in with some other guys hunted all through college so i went to alabama we had some public land around there we could go shoot buddies, and occasionally get into some groups of mallards if the weather was right and then now living in memphis i do all my hunting in arkansas
0: nice man uh freaking i can't remember it was your buddy i want to say his first name slade right
1: yeah, Slade like
0: okay. Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slade, who's been on the podcast before, uh, for anybody who's listening. I told him that when I lived down there, that anytime there was any type of altercation, you know, you might have got a little too big for your britches at the bar and getting ready to get your ass whooped, uh, just yell out, roll tide, and somebody's going to jump up and have your back.
1: Oh, absolutely. The whole you know, state spent, of
0: Alabama. <laughs> I spent my four
1: years there, and the state was very much so divided, but... Even if, say, you're in Mississippi and you holler, roll tide, I think an Auburn fan would come help you just because that's how everyone is down there.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a funny thing. Like, the the no – like, you know, the Saints, once you get closer to New Orleans, like, people are pretty strong supporters of the Saints. But you get in that weird Mississippi-Alabama line area, like Meridian down to Mobile. Like, there's just no pro team. Like, Alabama is the pro team. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You know,
1: I still try and go back once a year to watch a game. Um, I've been to several NFL games. I've been to huge, big uh, college games, but there's nothing like being in Bryant-Denny. I've, I've been to a bunch of SEC schools, but there's nothing like Bryant-Denny.
0: Yeah, that's freaking wild. It's It holds, what, like 110,000 or something?
1: Yeah, they're holding more than some of the pros are, but I think they're right at 110. and there's talks of, Redoing the north end zone to add
0: even more—that's insane. I think Arlington uh, Jerry World. I think that's the biggest stadium. Maybe not with the new ones that have opened, like Las Vegas and stuff. I think they're only at like eighty thousand.
1: Yeah,
0: it's freaking crazy. So you, uh, you you grew up wing shooting pheasant and stuff. How weird was that to move down to the south where there's no pheasant? Like in Missouri, good luck.
1: It was. It, it happened when I was ten years old. So, going from being a Midwest boy at 10 years old, you know, I went from fourth grade to fifth grade is when we moved. It was a complete culture shock in more ways than one. I mean, going down to the south where I talked different than everyone else, um, (laughs) didn't know anyone in any of my classes. Everyone had been in the same classes for like five and six years together. It was was crazy. Um, But finally made some friends that had places to hunt. Um, and learning to still hunt, it's still not my favorite thing deer hunting i I'd always say I deer hunt till duck season rolls around. I duck hunt till it closes, I take the time off, then I hit the turkey hard and then I start fishing. Yeah, I, was, I just I, the the deer is to put some meat in the freezer quick and then I, I move on.
0: Yeah, that's one thing man. I'm the same way. I just cannot sit still long enough for deer hunting like rabbit hunting was my jam and then it was like as soon as i found ducks it was like everything's on the wayside like uh
1: that's how it was for me
0: in the camaraderie aspect of it to where you can hang out and talk and freaking bs and you know eat snacks and laugh at the guy who falls in the water like that's that's what really drew me to waterfowl hunting
1: and i'm the same way you know deer hunting you're off by yourself and but pheasant hunting is the same way you're walking the field or you're walking the ditches with your dad or your granddad or your friends and you're making fun of each other and you're talking. And that's what drew me to it as well, you know, um, laughing at whoever fell through the snowdrift or whoever tripped over a log, which is usually me.
0: <laughs> so were you guys hunting like these big, like uh, as far as pheasant hunting goes, are you guys hunting like these big, huge ag fields and just freaking... So what, Go ahead.
1: what we do is up there you're allowed to road hunt so from the fence to the road is considered public land oh, shit. Um, it may be owned by someone and so you're allowed to walk the ditches and if you scare up a bird you can shoot at it and if it lands over the fence even if it's posted you leave your gun behind you cross the fence and go get your bird um so you know we might every so often get into somewhere that would let us hunt and you know, a field, or they leave some strips of corn up, uh, but for the most part, man, we just go hunt ditches, uh, ditches and draws up, up around up around big ag fields, but never necessarily in them.
0: It's amazing how much they hang out. Like, here, where I'm at in Missouri, I don't know if up north there's much pheasant at all anymore, but here, where I'm at, dude, there is not a pheasant within 250 miles, you know, like, it's not anything like that. And when I went out to hunt Colorado a couple of years ago, we were driving from freaking Duck Hole to Goose Field or whatever, you know, on the morning, and you would see nine, ten freaking roosters just hanging out on the side of the road and just run across, and it's like, dude, they're pheasant everywhere here. And, uh, it depends
1: on the year. They, you know, they may have a bad hatch a couple of years in a row, and they'll, their numbers will be down for three or four years. Um, like, my grandparents still live in South Dakota, so I try and sneak up there every now and then and get a hunt with them. And so... You know, their clutches have all been down the past couple of years, but they're kind of back on the rise again now.
0: I think, uh, I don't know, like, how much people go into it. I know pheasant hunting is like a rich man sport.
1: Oh, very much so.
0: Yeah. I think that's why duck hunters and stuff, like, it's such an easy transition because, you know, duck hunters it fits every block of life like you know everybody knows their poor duck hunting friends that you know they hunt the same old 870 they've had 30 years and you know wear the same leaky waders they've had forever and do a walk-in with some freaking old busted up decoys and they've been doing it or you can go out there and have you know 30 40 thousand dollar leases it, it yeah. just fits everybody but there's definitely a rich man side of duck hunting too
1: it's the same way with pheasant hunting, like, you know those guys, they'll go kill their three birds and they're happy with it, then you know those guys that, you know, they go up there for a full week and they're paying thousands for the lodge and they're shooting their, their $10,000 over and unders and, you know, then there's the guy out there with his, like, my granddad hunts with a 16-gauge bolt action because that's what he likes to hunt with.
0: Holy hell, bolt actions kick like a freaking mule. Uh
1: huh. 16-gauge sears and roebuck bolt action.
0: Does it have the, the no-butt pad on the stock?
1: Oh, yeah. Just a hard piece of plastic.
0: Yeah, bless, dude. I shot a freaking, uh, I think it was a 10-gauge with a steel plate, like, on the back. Bro, shooting 12s all day long is nothing. Then you go shoot one of those suckers. I'm like, yep, nope. People were just harder back then.
1: Oh, absolutely. A guy I work with, um, he used to do some guiding out of pits. So he'd shoot back up and shoot, you know shoot stragglers with his 10 gauge and he's gotten to the point now where he only shoots the 20 gauge at ducks because of how long he shot a 10 gauge
0: you know i think that in itself you know you said that he's an old school guy but i think an in, in old school thing was like sub gauge like the small ones uh 20s and that's what i hunted with for my first year was a 20 gauge and it was my freaking rabbit gun and it was way too short of a barrel way too light of a gun it was like 5.3 pounds it was a quarter inch under the youth model because it was my rabbit gun and i could carry it all day long and you know shoulder it swing it super fast and uh like i was like well you know this uh rabbit season it's not cold enough yet you know you really want to wait for your first freeze i was like well we got a couple you know of weeks of duck seasons opened up and uh i was like let's go try duck hunting so my buddy his grandpa used to duck hunt and had a bunch of old cabela's decoys and stuff like that and uh so we went out there greener than hell knew nothing we just went out to the lake and threw decoys and sat down and uh bro that was the longest first season ever until it finally clicked of what the hell we were doing wrong (laughs)
1: Oh, <laughs> You guys just standing out in the
0: wide open. Oh, yeah. You know, just we had a camo, you know, tarp, or not a tarp, but like a camo net just pulled over us on top of the bank, laying flat, like just <laughs> completely raw as shit. And uh, then we started hunting with one of my stepdad. My old stepdad used to hunt religiously, but uh, he hunted with one of his buddies, and that guy i ended up working with started he was like yeah man i'll take you guys out if you guys want to go you know maybe uh show you some different things we went out and hunted with him and had like a hundred percent more success than we were having but now looking back like eight years later nine years later whatever to ten years shit i don't know uh 2011 10 years um Now it's like, dude, we had, he, you know, he had no idea what the hell he was doing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, it was so much better than what you were trying.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. No scouting, no nothing. Showing up to the same cove every weekend. Putting out the same freaking, you know, two dozen floaters with freaking three spinners. And it was like, you know, we were killing a couple ducks every day. And it was fun. And it was way better than what we were doing. But it's like, man, nowadays... If I could only take you on a hunt now, he's he's so much older. It's harder for him to get out with us. But it's like if I could only take you on a hunt and show you, put you on one of these freaking twenty-five honker beatdowns. Like that would be that would be a good payment.
1: Oh, for sure. Mm. So it's, you said, you talk about guys you used to shoot a lot of sub I've I've started to see more and more guys going back to it. Um, so I do a lot of shooting outside of just hunting i shoot a lot of sporting clays and things like that and i've noticed people are realizing how well a 20 gauge will pattern and so i think i hunted with one two three four five six guys in the last two years that have all switched over to nothing but 20 gauge um they they get an m2 20 gauge they ship it off to rob roberts forcing cones trigger job they get it dipped, seracoted while it's all there um and then they let him set it up with one of his like T1 or T2 chokes, and they shoot black cloud through them, and they will pattern better than my 12 gauge all day long.
0: Yeah, I, I've I've seen the same thing you're talking about. Is everybody's going to that 20 gauge, and yeah, they pattern so much well, so so much better. Not I was about to say so much weller. That sounded ridiculous, but uh, I'm drinking water. I swear. Um, yeah, they pattern so much better. It brings a little bit more. Uh, you know, you have to think about your shot a little bit more too. Yep.
1: You know, it forces you to make sure that bird's in closer, and and it brings a little more sporting to the guys that have been doing it for thirty years. That you know, they had those magical spots where they kill limits. You know, two thirds of the season. You know, breaking out the twenty gauge just gives them a little extra, uh, a little extra sporting to it, and and allows them to hunt longer. Like he's got a, the guy I'm talking about. He's got a bad neck now. He can't shoot a twelve gauge, but shooting the twenty allows them to be sporting and also still continue to hunt
0: yeah with shooting all those clays and stuff do you wear like hearing protection while you're hunting
1: oh uh, no and that's more for me it's more of a safety thing i like to hear what's going on around me um i don't like muffled when i'm hunting i know it's bad and i know it's terrible but i'd rather not have someone sneak up on me in the woods than um you know the five six shots i may take that day without
0: earplugs (laughs) i i feel you there we had a story about somebody sneaking up on us we had no earplugs in and we're hunting uh this rock bluff the lake was super low and it's like a 15 foot face of a rock bluff but you can climb down it like it's a nice easy little path and then it's like a mud flat for a good 300 yards out on a point like where three rivers meet going into the lake so it's just like this amazing freaking spot for traffic. You know, it's like a no-scout type of thing where you just show up and there's birds going to be overhead if the weather is uh, right and we actually have birds in this part of the state. But we were down there hunting on it, and we had built up, you know, a bunch of cedars and drug a bunch of crap and put it up against a rock brush and had us a nice little semi-permanent blind out there for the season. And uh, we're sitting there just in the blind BSing with each other, and I think we had just had a group work. And shot a few, and we're just talking back and forth. And Justin Strain, who's always on this thing, uh, you know, he was doing the football stuff with me over the season. And uh, we're sitting there. I don't know what made him say it, but we're talking about how how good of a you know a, f- a group that was, and he yells out, "No breaks on the rape train," which you know, obviously, it's not. F- You have to be careful saying that on a podcast. But, uh, yeah, just, you know, we're all laughing and joking around. And then a freaking MDC agent is like, what'd you say? And we all turn around and look up. We're like, oh, hey, what's going on, sir? (laughs) We're
1: like, those guys, there's something else. The sneaking they can do. And, like, even the most seasoned guys in the woods that know everything that's going on around them, they have found a way to just, like, it's like they're from Harry Potter. They disappear just right behind people. Like, how'd you get there? There's no telling.
0: And the only way to get to this point is, like, a two-mile, very, very needed four-wheel drive, rocky path. Like, a good wheeling spot if you have a Jeep. Like, just a super beaten-down path. Like, if you're you're not going through it in two-wheel or...
1: uh, He wanted to come see you all that
0: bad. Oh, yeah. And you figured you would hear him. Like, he walked that whole path. And I was like, dude, all that just to check us and find out we're all legal.
1: Yeah, that's that's always my fun thing is I'm not gonna break the law, and so when I do, someone does work that hard to come check on me. I'm like, "Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Just call me next time. Meet me at the boat ramp next time."
0: Yeah, that you know that stuff is always fun. People get upset about different agents and stuff like that, and I was like, "Man, every time I've ever been checked by an agent, they've all been pretty nice and professional." We had one that was kind of a pain in the ass that wants you to, you know normally it's just like a plug check or you know check your birds and stuff like that but we had one that wanted to go through every single bag made us pull out every decoy and it's like dude come on like get the hell out of here yeah and i'm pretty sure it was a day that we got skunked like a a terrible hunting day i was like dude we didn't pull the trigger
1: just a slap in the face at the end of it all yeah (laughs) you just (laughs) just just wasting our time
0: man so you, you, you get down there, you get into this duck hunting stuff. Uh, you said your buddy from college was the first guy to take you, or were you doing it before that?
1: Yeah, so I had not not until I got to college. Um, we were sitting around one night, and I was like, man, I want to go duck hunting sometime. And he's like, dude, I go on a regular basis. Let's, like, set up a trip together. So we set up a trip. Um, we book a guide service on Gunnerville hunting divers, which if you've never hunted divers and you want to kill canvasbacks and redheads and crazy things like that, go hunt on Lake Guntersville in Alabama because they have all of it and so we go down there hunt our first year um don't just absolutely smack them but enough to enough to light the fire in me and so come back to school the next year I order a pair of waders um and I hunt a season with some other friends of mine on some public ground around Tuscaloosa um the Sipsy there's a couple lakes within an hour or two we start hunting all those spots um, and then it's when I start to see, you know, I watch these guys, friends of mine that know how to call, that have been calling, they grew up in Arkansas, have always hunted there, they know how to call. And I see that that relationship between someone on a call and a wild animal, and that, that, that animal, that bird responding to it. And I'm just, I've always been so fascinated by that. The same thing with turkey hunting. Like, a noise I'm making is, is getting a reaction out of this animal. I'm, I'm tricking it to think I am, I am the same thing as it has always just fascinated me. So that's when I, I decide I've got to learn to call. I pick up a, an R&T short barrel, um, start watching every video I can find, listening to CDs of Bill Dowdle, people like that talking about how to call, and I just start to figure it out. And I get to a point where I'm, I feel pretty, pretty confident in my calling ability. Uh, I hunt a season with a call on my lanyard. Uh, starting to learn how to work ducks and not just sound like one um, and a couple of years later i that's when I decided I, for I, about the same time I was wanting to get into call making but it was about three years before I really got truly started.
0: Yeah, and that's good man because that transition from because, you know, the transition from not being able to call to get into call making is always an interesting because even as a competition caller you know, you... You start off not knowing anything at a point. And it's like how natural can you pick it up? Can you get proficient on the sucker? And then once you think you're proficient, find out that you're not at all from a really, really good caller and like yeah. continue to get better and better to the point of you know respectability, maybe not on a step on a stage scale. because the way that you know calls went forever, I don't know how it was with, you know, like, hand-turned stuff back in the the 70s and 80s and stuff like that before, like, big-name companies came in. You know, the stuff you see on the on the store, mm-hmm. it's all CNC'd, all that type of good stuff. But it was, you have to win Worlds, and you might have to win it a couple times, and then it was like, what's the nat- the natural progression? What happened to every single person that won Worlds for freaking 20 oh. years?
1: Yeah, they're all making calls or have their name on someone's
0: call. Yeah, line. they're a call company yeah. after that. So it was yeah. like as a hand turn guy, it's like, well, you know, you you don't have the world championship attached to names. Like I can't think of any really of the guys that, you know, we know in the group and stuff like that that have the calling championship attached to their names, even though there's some world champion call makers. If that makes
1: any yeah, sense? Yeah, I don't think there's anyone that that made it all the way. You know, Domingo got close. Um, Shanahan does a bunch of calling. Uh, with a, he makes a few here and there, but I don't think there's anyone like that's doing the small batch hand turn stuff that is a world champion.
0: Yeah. Well, aside from freaking John, which of course yeah. he's he's a crazy man on his own. But yeah, Shanahan he, he Shanahan makes some really freaking good calls, and Shanahan's a great caller. I know that for a while he was uh he was doing a lot of cnc stuff just to you know run a business and uh i know he was doing it from a distance and tuning calls like on his lunch breaks and stuff like that he posts insta videos all the time with that crap i can't imagine
1: trying to do run a business and, and work full time especially trying to do a duck call business because it it takes so much time and effort to individually touch every single call it's not like you're you're mass producing something boxing it up and shipping it out you've got to you've got to put your touch on everything
0: yeah yeah for sure so you know it it, what i was getting to was um you know being a call maker and like what was the process from going to uh like running a call making a call and figure having somebody else run it and figure out if it was good enough
1: Yeah, so I spent, uh, there was, I think there was one time during the summer, I I left a call in my truck, and I rode, run it, I had a 45-minute drive to and from where I was working at the time, I ran a call 45 minutes each way, so an hour, almost an hour and a half every single day, just to, just to try and get better, Um, and that was just because I wanted to be a better caller, that was even before I had a real notion of wanting to make calls, Um, but it's a very satisfying thing when you get it to do what you want it to do. And then it's heartbreaking when you hand that call to someone. And they're like, yes, it needs this, 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 and this. Touch this up and work on that. And And then you then you get back on it and you fix those things and you realize that it's an even better call than before. And then that, that satisfying moment when you hand it back. So, like, I got to hand my call. Or, I talk to Jeremy Chin every now and then. He lives a couple, about 45 minutes from me. And to have him, you know, someone else who makes calls and knows what they're doing, run a call that you've put two years of your time into um, and say, that's it, I like that a lot, there's nothing I would change if if that was my call is a very satisfying thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, man, that's totally what I was going for because I think the same thing. I think it's so hard to learn and develop one, and I can speak from personal experience, like without having that other person to, like, bounce ideas off of and you know uh really figure it out i think that's a a tough thing for call makers to do because like you said you worked on yours with a flat jig for two years and it's great with all the new call makers i love support new call makers and stuff like that but it's always interesting to see how quick somebody comes up with tone board sometimes
1: yeah um I, I, it is interesting to see Um, for me, I, I have no intention of truly selling calls, really. I mean, if I sell them here and there, cool. Um, so for me, it was about perfecting it and getting it to be what I wanted it to be and what I thought I could make. So it wasn't about, you know, getting it done quick and, and moving on to the next step. You know, I do things in between, like figured out how to do inlays and figure out how to do tips and caps, but the whole two years was focusing on the way it sounded
0: and and that's the best way of doing it man like even as many as i flat jigged there's some that still just stump the ever-living piss out of me i'm like all right you know i know all the measurements are good they're all the same everything is almost identical hell it's even the same material it's like why in the hell is this one not working and it'll take me three times as long to freaking flat jig it and tune it than the call right before that
1: Oh, so I've got one right now. It come off, my, you know. I can pull one off the jig, and it'll be perfect. It'll be exactly what I want. Maybe a little touch of sandpaper. And I've got one I've been on for three days now. It just come out of the jig and just isn't quite right. And trying to just get it there before I ruin it because it's got inlays and everything else on it, and I'm supposed to send it off for NWTF. So I don't want to restart on it. <laughs>
0: I heard, uh, that's the bad thing about doing super yeah. custom jobs. Stelsner commented one time, we were talking about how long it took to, to make a call, get it tuned up, and he po- he posted a comment, I don't remember whose post it was on originally, and he's like, dude, if it's not done in 15, 10 minutes, I scrap it and go for another one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I have a little more patience than that, but I'm also not trying to live full time on it, so I can I can understand where he's coming
0: from with oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. You don't have time to sit around and mess with crap that long.
1: Yeah. After about 10 minutes, you're losing money at that point.
0: Oh, man. That's always the most heartbreaking thing when you do, like you're talking about, an NWTF call. And uh, you get it all done. I mean, it's got inlays. It's sleeved. It's of a really expensive burl. You know, like everything is just done to the nines. You've already got the CA finish looking good. And then you go to start working on the tune, and you're like, "I cannot believe I'm about to scrap this freaking insert because it is about to give me a freaking coronary." Trying to figure out and diagnose this sucker, like, I've gotten to the point where, like, I won't even finish finish the call, like, until it's tuned and ready to freaking roll because I don't want to, you know, waste that tuning time or the uh, finishing time. Oh, I get that.
1: Those are the ones that when I finally am done with it. I smash with a hammer just because it makes me feel better. <laughs> I, I grab a ball-peen hammer, I set it on the concrete floor, and I whack it. I used to do that a lot. I uh, I,
0: I try to quit because the first time that I see my children pick something up and smash it, I'm going to lose my mind because it will be 100% <laughs> my fault.
1: Oh. Like I, had one, I was going to take the call Colapalooza with me uh barrel cracked on me so i redid the barrel did the insert get the insert cut i put the first cork in it and it's got a bad spot snaps the cork notch off oh. i kept the barrel snatched the insert at the end of it it was a whole new call and it didn't even end up going with me because i just didn't have the time to get it finished
0: <laughs> i think that is a thing too man that i've found so many times over the years that Like, some of them just go together smooth as butter. Everything works out perfect. You don't have any problems. You turn it in and out, done. Tune it up in and out, done. It's ready to go. And then some of them, it seems like every single thing about it just wants to fight you and be cursed. Like, I've had just flat-out cursed calls. Like, uh, you know, you'll freaking... I had one the other night that it was a piece of maple... And uh turned it down, got it all done, banded, polished. Um I hadn't done clear coat or anything like that yet. So not polished, but polished the band, got it all fitted because I i leave a shoulder on mine, so I fit up hey. my bands and then I trim off the little bit of excess and uh got everything ready to go and I grow to grab this sucker off the lathe. It was Tuesday night and it was still hot and I was a little bit tired at that point and wasn't paying attention i grab it by the band and just burn the ever-living piss out of myself and this was a real punky blank so it had lots of little freaking holes in it and stuff so i'd been ca filling and like taking a lot of careful you know taking my time on it to make sure it didn't have a blowout and uh i freaking grab that sucker it burns the ever-living piss out of my hand i drop it on the freaking floor and the barrel just cracks splits in two pieces i was like you've got to be kidding me i was like that's a wrap i'm done for tonight
1: yeah i had i have had to quit doing i can do a ca make it shiny i've had to quit doing it because i've for some reason in the shop i just i fumble everything and the number of ca calls i've had to redo the ca on because i drop it and then have to redo it to the point that i've just stopped doing ca altogether that I, I don't want to take that chance of someone dropping it or myself dropping it and ruining the finish on it
0: yeah i uh that's another mike stelsner tip that i saw from him a long time ago was a rubber mat underneath your uh lathe
1: <laughs> like yeah, i under, have one under my lathe but unfortunately under i still have my harbor freight lathe set up for polishing uh under that lathe i do not and that's the one that likes to grab calls from me and <laughs> sling them across the shop
0: <laughs> yeah that's a. Uh, that i've never put it underneath there it's something else to clean up under but yeah that uh could save a little bit of headache that uh that drop and chip man every time because i i like to do tuning inside because it's air conditioned it's cleaner like you know i can just sit down throw on netflix on the phone or something like that and work on tuning and uh the kids will always want to come up and check out all the work and stuff and if it's a CA finish call, I'm like, no, please don't touch it. Because I don't want to get mad at you if you drop this and chip it.
1: <laughs> we have a pretty strict rule of no calls in the house while the wife is around. So most of my tuning still happens while I'm sweating in the shop.
0: Ugh. See, I'm very, very fortunate. I, uh, My mom, I said it on a podcast a while back. My mom asked the girlfriend, she's like, what are you... Th-? Because I was tuning while they were talking in the living room and I was in the kitchen. They're like... Doesn't that noise just drive you crazy is what she asked her? And she was like, it sounds like money to me. That's that's what I'm worried about.
1: <laughs> See, my, my wife grew up around her father and her grandfather who hunted religiously. So she has heard so many duck calls and goose calls over the years that if she never hears another one, it'll be too soon. Really? And here I am. I decided to start making calls.
0: I was going to say, it, it's in her genetics at that point. Like, she should be cool with it
1: she should you know her granddad learned to duck hunt from chick majors holy um so her granddad her like her great-great-grandfather came to memphis came to america making golf clubs passed down a few generations her granddad's in the shop the duck or the the golf club shop chick majors and another guy come in to get some golf clubs made and they see her granddad sitting in there at you know 13, 14 years old, they say, hey kid, you want to learn to duck hunt? So they take him duck hunting, they teach him how to hunt, they teach him how to call, they play a bunch of practical jokes on him, and he lit a fire in him for duck hunting, unlike any other, I mean, he was a 60, 60 days a year kind of guy, um, when he first got married, after like 15 days in a row, his wife looked at him, was like, "Are you really going duck hunting again?" He said, "Yep," yeah, and closed the door and walked out.
0: <laughs> it's not. Am I going again today? It's how long am I going to be there?
1: Yeah, you know, he grew. They they hunted the Cache River, and so her father and her grandfather, if they're not going out to kill a lemon of mallards, they're not going out. Like if, they're not going to go out and struggle for a couple gray ducks. They're not going to go out to shoot gadwall. They're going to go out shoot aluminum mallards if they're going to go. They've just gotten to a point that if if it's any kind of struggle at all, if it's not a you know a mallard shoot. They're not going.
0: You know, I feel like that's a thing that is just a natural progression as a hunter. Like I I love waterfowling. Obviously, look at all the crazy crap that I do with it. You know, but if as bad as it has been lately and i've caught flack from other guys that are like oh you're not a real hunter if you're not going every single day i'm like man it was different when i was young no kids didn't have you know other things that were more important to me but now it's like if it's 60 degrees in december like yeah I'm, i'm probably out today guys i'm probably gonna hang out and go out to the park with the family instead i think that's just an like i couldn't imagine doing that you know six seven years ago where it was still balls of the wall every single day there was one year that we added up we hunted like 105 days from dove season all the way out until the end of turkey it was like four or five days a week while working full-time jobs
1: i couldn't imagine doing that while working full-time i love my sleep way too much to hunt 60 days a year
0: we were doing uh working it was me and justin we were working at a company and we were uh three to eleven and so every morning it was like get up go hunting come home take a nap and then we had you know a couple of all-nighters that were just horrible ideas leave from work and go hunt and then get back by noon and come back into work (laughs) like just insane the things that gave me gray hair long before i should have gray hair
1: oh absolutely (laughs) you know i had that conversation with colton is one day is for me it's about the enjoyment of it and if I'm like four days straight of you know only three four hours of sleep I'm not enjoying it um, I'm just not I get but I don't have much sleep I get grumpy I get irritable and I know that and so after like if I get a good three-day weekend I might hunt all three days but then the next chance I get I'm gonna sleep for 12 hours
0: yeah see I I'm the same way, man. I get really freaking grumpy. Um, we went from doing that to when Justin and I were working on the show along with a couple other buddies. as we were going to work three to eleven, and I've said this on other podcasts. I don't know how many times I say it. So for people who are listening, I'm sorry if you hear it all the time. But we were going and working from three to eleven, getting off work, going and sleeping a couple hours. Usually getting up by three thirty in the morning to go hunt and then i was coming home after the hunt by you know 9 10 o'clock every day and i was going through footage and trying to arrange footage and the way that our last season of the show was is uh shows were due friday night to air on saturday or air on sunday i can't remember so it was like we were hunting during the week i was going through footage And then it aired on Sunday, and it had to be in by Saturday. That's what it was. And then I would spend all Saturday after the hunt finishing the final edit of the freaking episode for it to air the next day. So it was like, you try to be a couple weeks in advance, like have episodes ready to roll, and that's how I try to stay. But it was like nonstop, like three to four hours of sleep for months on end and like constantly sitting in front of a computer or hunting. Or getting paid to do a less than spectacular performance at my job because i wasn't sleeping
1: yeah i i couldn't imagine doing that you know i've had those times in life where i'll go a month where i'm running four or five hours of sleep for whatever reason but after about a month of it i'm done i can't i take two months to recover from it
0: yeah there's there's a big reason i don't do that crap anymore i uh (laughs) freaking raggio called me the other day and he was like you know just talking to me he's like hey man glad to see you're doing these things again he's like what's up with the hiatus like uh you know I, I got used to listening to you all the time and then you took that hiatus and i was like you know i was doing it to myself again i was going too much doing too much work coming home from my job and uh trying to trying to uh set up and do a podcast immediately or work around guys schedules and it was like figuring it out and i was like dude i just too much too soon at a time while trying to work it's like these one a week maybe get up to two a week at some point but i try to keep it on my days off so that way it's like not affecting the family time and stuff like that so that way it's enjoyable to me because this conversation is enjoyable to me if i was tired and been doing it every day it's a bit more of a struggle and i don't think that it's fair to everybody that listens for me to like not be into it
1: yeah, you know, someone like I've listened to basically all of them, and um, I think that we would all rather have one a week from you and have this last four, three, four, five years, however long you carry it on, than to have you continued what you were doing, seen the burnout, and never had it again.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. It, it's more sustainable, for sure.
1: Absolutely, and it's. You know, I think I even reached out to you at one point. I was like, "Hey, man, like, you coming back?" Because like, I enjoy it. It's what I listen to when I know I'm in the shop or driving to and from work. That I was, I was missing it there for a little while. So I'm glad you're back up and running with
0: them. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And it's, it's crazy when you realize how addicted to like that type of stuff. Because I drive 10 hours a day, um, you know, just for my job. And so, obviously, I have like 10 podcasts that I'm subscribed to that some of them are two a week, some of them are three a week, some of them are every day. And when they don't put it out, it's like, damn it, man, what am I going to do for the next hour and a half? I got to find something else to listen to. I've, yeah. I've got like 30 books on my Audible account that, you know, I've already ran through all of them, some of them multiple times. And it's like, you know, you're constantly looking for uh, new stuff. It's crazy how it gets addicted.
1: Yeah, I like to save the podcast up. I try and, every couple of months, I try and head down to Louisiana and do some inshore fishing. So I try and, I'll save up seven or eight so I can take up that six-hour drive with them.
0: <laughs> I feel you, man. It's like, uh, the, I've been off the last two days. I haven't listened to one of my normal subscribed podcasts, just so I know Friday, tomorrow's going to be a good day. I'm going to have a lot of stuff to listen yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll get back into this uh, this call thing, man. So you're working on tone board two years get that thing happy with how you like it learning tips inlays um what was like finding information on that stuff like was it pretty easy for you or was it uh was it a challenge so
1: time to time i got on Tho long before i even bought a lathe um, i'm a researcher i'm gonna research everything i do before i do it so i spent Probably six months reading every post I could find on THO before I even bought a lathe. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the things I, or tips or tricks or methods that I use, I kind of picked up from the tutorials on, on THO. I was crushed to see it gone, but very happy that it is back now. Um, so I have kind of had a decent understanding of at least the process before I bought a lathe. Um, I'm rather mechanically inclined. I'm a general contractor, I work in construction for a living, so figuring out how things go together and problem solving, I do on a daily basis, so when I have, you know, I say I've got an idea, I want to figure out how to do it, if I can't find a solution for it online that I like, I'll I'll come up with a way for it, like, I'm in the middle of doing a fluted call right now, just because I love the look of it, and I I had to do one for myself.
0: (laughs) Yeah, dude, fluted calls—that is my favorite thing that Alan Whitson does.
1: Oh, absolutely! I had a long talk with him at Calla about it. That he did one in acrylic, like a, a fluted acrylic call, blew my mind, and I wish I knew where it was because I'd try and buy
0: it. Yeah, that dude. I uh, he like I, I mentioned on the last one. He is one of the first custom call makers that I ever met before I even got into this thing, and uh, I was pretty disappointed. Because when I got there, he was working uh... – he was in the competition, wasn't he? Oh, uh, I don't
1: think he was this year. I think I he know. was on the team that did not return.
0: I don't know what the hell he was doing. Maybe he was uh... – He was
1: kind of in and out. I think that, that he had been there all week, and I think towards the end of it, he rolled out a little
0: early. Yeah, I saw him for like a good like 10 minutes, and it was right as we were leaving. And I was like, damn it. It was the same way with everybody, man. That was my favorite – Thing that I've done as a call maker is going and just putting faces to names, and uh, you know having these in-depth conversations is cool, and I really enjoy them. But it's so much more fun to talk in person, and uh, that that was definitely one of my favorite ones. But I wish I had more time to talk to everybody.
1: So I did the same thing you did last year. So last year I went, I drove over, it's a two-hour drive from Memphis. So I drove over in the morning, hung out all day drove back got home about midnight and i told myself that i was like next year i've got to stay so this year i got off work on friday drove over got there friday afternoon uh hung out all friday and then hung out all day saturday saturday night and the people you meet there the the collectors the makers everyone um it is an absolute blast for some someone that is into the call making
0: yeah, yeah, I dude, that was it was everything, and it was cool to see people that like that I don't that I haven't done a podcast with like um, Brian um, Spray is that his name? Yeah, yeah, okay. Like I know I walked by his booth and I hadn't talked to him yet, and I was like, dude, your name sounds super familiar, and uh, I saw the uh, the call the call Classic plaque on there, and I was like, dude, I don't think we've ever talked even online but i've seen your stuff forever and like you know sat down and talked to him for not sat down but I was standing next to his booth and talking to him for a couple minutes and i was like how you know how cool is that because i think he's from a ways away
1: yeah there was a lot of people that drove a lot of hours to get there um a lot of guys like last year i was able to meet guys like ron davis and have chats with them but like this year to be able to like sh- like meet sean and landon and joey and um People like that that I wouldn't normally even meet outside of call making or even within call making to get a seat out. I mean, for John and Angie to put that on for everyone is just a truly amazing event.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I even I posted it on his, and I think I said it in the last podcast. Like I apologized to Landon because Joey said that he had come up with Landon, and he just said his first name and i was you know you saw me wrangling freaking children i i didn't even put two and two together and i gave him a head nod i'm like hey man how's it going didn't even realize who it was and it was like well hell you know i feel bad now because i feel like a jerk
1: (laughs) i think he fully understood i mean everyone gets so overwhelmed like i wish i would have had more time to talk to uh talk to ron this weekend or that weekend I, i didn't get the time for that um I think everyone understands it's busy, but we everyone knows
0: we'll catch them on the next one. Yeah, how about freaking Ron's wife being a trooper, dude? It was their anniversary, and that was I their know. trip.
1: <laughs> there is no way I would have gotten away with that. No. no way,
0: especially like it's cool. Like I was lucky enough that she came with me to do like the two-hour pass through that we had, but sitting out there in the heat all day long, and I know that with me and freaking especially if you know korea was there longer while i was there do we would have ended up way too many beers in yeah i would have been making an ass out of myself
1: uh i tell you what there was a lot of alcohol consumed uh (laughs) between friday night and saturday night um it was a fun time
0: (laughs) who was the uh the call maker meredith had one of his calls it was like a super cool checkered call it was from a guy i'd never even heard of
1: I couldn't tell you his name. He had the booth next to Nathan Talley. Um, He was a guy that not a lot of people hear of. It's not, as far as the collectors go, he hasn't become real collectible yet. But he had, he must have had 40, 50 hand checkered calls there. And they were all beautiful. And selling them for like $100. That's what I was going to say. Selling them for like not near worth what they were. And they were beautiful calls. I wish I would have picked one up while I was there
0: yeah dude you know how many freaking i don't know how long it takes to check her a call but i can imagine like that it just blew my mind because meredith came back with it and i was like he was talking about how it was only 100 bucks and i was like get the hell out of here that's like a a real weird subject with call making is like what the hell is the price supposed to be and i was like i know it's supposed to be a lot more than that
1: oh absolutely you know some guys that are doing it for fun you know, just barely cover cost and you know some guys are really really expensive but I think we could all agree he was way too cheap on his calls for the amount of time that was going into each one of those <laughs> I agree I mean, they were they were three pa- three race panel fully checkered calls yeah
0: that it, it was mind blowing I'm like dude get yourself on on the interwebs and uh get known because that's way too for cool real and uh it's like you, you you gotta value your time freaking josh tore my ass up he's like dude why are you turning calls for free <laughs> and i was like i know man i know and he's like freaking step up man quit turning calls for free
1: see i like doing the loans for free you know i, I didn't get into it to make the money i think i looked at my book right now when 16 calls have left my shop this year which is very little compared to some guys and i think two-thirds of them have been for free just because that's that's what I'd rather do with them. I sell a few here to buy some more wood with and to recoup some of my investment. And I just I like doing it. To me, it's it's about the camaraderie. Like I've got a client; he's bought five off me in total. Well, after his most recent order, he announced he was having his first little boy. I was like, well, I'm making a blue velvet call for him for his for his son. And it, it's that kind of thing for me that that I also got into. It I wanted to be able to make gifts for people that I hunt with or that are close friends that would appreciate them that that's something that I made that were functional and last forever
0: yeah well I can understand that I mean like not quite literally free like the giveaway calls and the stuff for your friends I don't mean like that he pretty much harping on me about selling too cheap (laughs) like you're barely covering (laughs) materials buddy and you know I try to shoot for like 100 to 125 calls a year and he's like dude you're doing a lot more than uh than you know the typical like i'm just giving them to my family and friends type thing he's like stop freaking selling crap for free
1: yeah you know he's got a point that some guys out there that you know if you got a name behind you someone like colton someone like you or or meredith i mean they could easily get 300 for a call but some of them that's not what it's about but i think you do have to find that line where it is worth it and kind of helps to prevent some of the burnout if you're priced right
0: yeah yeah for sure man it's like uh minimum wage is fifteen dollars right now like what's a better use of your time for three hours yeah (laughs) but i can also understand the uh the relaxation time of it um you know because it is relaxing even though it's out in the heat sometimes and it's miserable it's something that i do enjoy
1: yeah i'm the same way my wife does, does a lot of studying right now she's working her way to med school and then hopefully we'll be getting into med school this next year so she'll have four years of studying so for me it it gets me out of the house and keeps me from bugging her while she studies
0: (laughs) as long as you're out in the garage blowing a call
1: exactly and she'll (laughs) say something you all come back inside she'll be like i heard you wailing on one out there i'm like well yeah that's the only spot i'm allowed to
0: (laughs) you're like yeah you got too much going on and that's like this uh freaking just is in summer classes right now for final semester freaking her uh masters and it's like one of her classes it's a three credit hour class and there is like a list of homework every single day like a legit two and a half hours of homework every day for a once a week class i'm like good god man like so it's like well uh, I know you're going to be studying, so I'm just going to be uh, spending a lot more time in the shop.
1: That's exactly how mine is. I'm so glad to be done with all of that. Um, she's still enjoying it. So tonight she's got a class online class from 6 to 9. So that's I'll go in. i got to clean up a little bit more inside, eat some dinner, and probably make my way back out to the shop to have a little more time out here playing around.
0: Yeah, man, that's good. That's good stuff. So uh, you get everything nailed down with you're happy with your sound you're happy figuring some stuff out let's talk the other controversial subject which it's not at all for you but uh shape man what's wh- did you have a shape in mind when you first started
1: no i let it kind of free flow um i just said let's let's see what i can do um and see what i like um i the barrel shape for me hasn't changed much uh, i really like my barrel shape I started out with a really, really flared insert, and after about a month, I hated it. I mean, just hated it. And so I I stopped one day, and I said, I'm going to spend the next three days trying to find a shape I like. Um, And I'm actually, my calls are kind of closely shaped to Rusty Heron's. Um, Now he's doing goose calls, I'm doing duck, but... It's got a, it's got some similarities to it, and I had a conversation with him about it at call of Palooza last year. I said, you know, my shape's kind of like yours, but there's obvious differences. He goes, you know, if if you had if my calls had any kind of inspiration on you and and your design and your making of a call, he goes, I am nothing but honored by that. So that was nice to hear that he wasn't going to cause a fuss about it. And I think I do have enough uniqueness about mine while still being. A shape I like and I'm excited about making.
0: Yeah, dude, that makes total sense, and it's really funny you mentioned that, because when I pulled up yours specifically, I was like, it reminds me of a goose call, for sure. Yeah. And I like it. It's nice, it's clean, it's classic. Like, it's a good-looking shape. It can be, uh, it can be difficult, man, to find something and make it unique. Like, you know, we've all heard the, the age-old adage, there's only so many ways you can make a duck call, and um, that while that's true, it's like finding that way to make it your own.
1: Yeah, and I tend to disagree with it that I think if someone is truly buying a call to buy a call and for the appreciation of what a custom call is, they're going to see the differences in it. Now, if yours is a tenth of an inch away from someone else's, yes, it's going to be an issue, but I think there is a million possibilities out there to make a call that you can make it your own whether you you put a shoulder on it or you don't if you do you know um someone like ronnie turner he's got two burn lines or two grooves in all of his calls you know it's something like that to set yourself apart that i think there's there is still probably a 100 years worth of makers of people being able to be individual
0: yeah it's about finding you know how it's basically not taking the lazy way out and just saying there's only so many ways to make it. It's it's finding a way to make it your own. But obviously, like you said, it's something that you have to be proud about making and something that is not going to be crazy difficult to repeat. Um, there was a while, man. Um, I can't remember who it was, and I'm not going to say anybody's name. But they were making these crazy little... Uh, points on their call that went all the way around if that makes sense like you're cutting but then you take like a sharp dip down a sharp dip back back up yeah um landon does it on some or not landon um who the hell i'm not gonna be able to remember the name because i'm trying to right now but um these crazy little flares one of the guys that was turning his crap live all the time that had um the... Oh, he
1: was, like, a 4D and a 5D, and you could get however many points off yes,
0: him. Yes, yes, like... So that
1: is that is the gentleman that actually inspired me to call make, because I loved watching him turn a call.
0: Yeah, that's so insane. Do you remember how much hell he was catching? Oh, and I, I think he's kind of hit himself in his own little corner now, so he doesn't catch as much, but I still occasionally come along his live videos. Yeah, yeah, we won't mention his name, but, uh, yeah, that stuff was crazy, it was like uh yeah like you said if you were turning live you would spend so much money but that shape is what i'm talking about somebody was doing that a couple years ago with wood uh it was right before that guy started or right around when that guy was doing some of those videos and it was a call maker that was making calls for a couple years um or uh, like a year and then disappeared but, uh, his,
1: I couldn't imagine just the number of catches and blowouts you'd have on all those little ridges.
0: Right, well, and imagine trying to CA finish, something like that.
1: Or, or even just sand it smooth without yes. just totally destroying the, the shape and the
0: points. And that, and that right there is my point of, uh, you know, you want to find a shape to make it unique, but you, going so... Out of your way to make it so unique that it's not repeatable, not fun, not you know, not something you yeah. can finish.
1: For me, it's, you know, I could have come up with something really, really unique and been different than everyone else out there. But at the end of the day, I want to I want to like what I'm making. I want to I wanted to enjoy my shape and truly be excited to go out there and make another one. Yeah, and not be so well. I had to be so off the wall different than everyone else that you don't even like it you just do it because it's different I wanted to like it and still be my own which I think I've, I've done a decent job with I don't think there's too many people out there with them you know there's there's a stylistic of you know like you and Ostervik and um, there's a couple other call makers that are in that same realm and then I think you know mine kind of looks like a goose call but is a long more of a, a classical look
0: yeah Yeah, for sure, man, and that's, uh, it's, like you said, just find something that you like, making it unique, making it your own, but make it still look good, like something that people are going to want.
1: Absolutely. Um, That's been the struggle for me, is like, do I, do I, do I start pushing these, like I'm trying to sell them where I want people to want them, or do I just keep doing my thing? And I think for right now, I've just decided uh, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to keep making them. If they sell, they sell. If they don't, I'll have a shelf full of my own calls.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's a that's a good way of doing it is figuring out what you want to be in the uh, in the call world. Like, is it? Do I want to sell three hundred a year, or am I am I cool with doing like a comfortable range? Like. There was a year that I, I pushed really, really hard to try to sell a bunch of calls. And I think I got up to like 180 one year. And it was madness. I, it was, I think it was the last year I turned before I took a one-year break from doing it. Just like we were talking about earlier. One of those things where I got too deep into it and uh, burnt myself out on it. And now it's like at the beginning of every year, I'm like, all right, 100 to 125. Like I'm comfortable there. If I do a if bit I more?
1: could get to that point where I, I sold that many, I'd be very pleased. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still coming up trying to make a name. I'm not very vocal on social media, so I don't, I don't get a lot of attention on there, which is fine by me. I'm not a big social media guy. Um, but for what I am right now, you know, I want this to be a lifelong hobby for me. So, you know, if I spend the next five to ten years on duck calls and then maybe pick up, figure trying to figure out pot calls or, or start doing strikers or owl hooters or grunts or slowly add in other things is, is kinda of my goals, you know. At some point I might figure out how to check or a call or like right now I'm I'm working on fluted calls. I just wanna grow with it and have this be a lifetime hobby for myself.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. Especially as a hobby, you know, as like being a hobby, there's a lot more freedom associated with it that was one of the things that i really wanted to do when i first started back up i was like i don't want this to become part of my income like i i don't want to have to rely on this and you know as time goes on it gets a little bit more towards that area but it's like i don't i don't want to lose the passion for it being forced to have to do it
1: and one thing I like, I really try hard to is like, if I don't feel like going out to the shop, even if I have an order that I need to get done, if I don't feel like going out, I don't. If it's too hot, it's too cold, I'm tired, I want to sit on the couch and play with the dogs, I stay inside. If, if I want to do it, I go. If I don't, I don't. Just to just to keep, I try and prevent burnout with that.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that is perfect. That's the best mindset to have in you know not even so much burnout but it's like am i are you really going to get my best work if i'm making myself do this
1: yeah
0: it uh it can really cause some problems
1: yeah no definitely and you know i work a rather high stress job and so for me it's is it's my yeah. relaxation and so if it gets to a point where it's stressful i'll stop for a week if i if i feel like it's it's getting to be any amount of pressure uh nah. I'll see you later. I, you know, all my stuff's paid for. I have no payments on anything. I'll shut that garage door and come back to it two weeks later.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. I've, like I said, I think that's the right mindset to have, and it's the uh, the best sanity mindset you can have.
1: I absolutely. You know, sometimes I'll have other projects. So I kind of have more of a full wood chop. But, you know, I keep a big 12-inch bandsaw. I just picked up a planer. I have a table saw, um, multiple drill presses, chop saws. So, like you know sometimes i'll build a small table for whatever or um the other day the wife needed something to keep straws in in the house so i whip something up i'll i'll pull in a different project where it's still me woodworking enjoying my time outside but it's away from calls for five or six trips to the shop
0: yeah it's that that creative outlet you know like i say on so many you know call makers are just a, a weird group of, of of creatives anyway you know like you can't go out there and do what we do if you don't have that creative bone, because if somebody tries to get into it and they don't have that, like you can just see it. Like, it yeah. It, it's too easy to tell that people are just slapping crap together.
1: You know, they, they slap it together, you see them around for a year and a half, they push the sales really hard, and then, then they're gone.
0: Yeah, and the, the way that you're doing it is the way to ensure that you stay. Doing it because I was talking with Nathan about it. I was like, man, every year you see you know twenty call makers pop up, and they'll be the new guy, and then a year later there'll be ten of them, and then five years from now there'll be five of them still doing it. And it's like, uh, it's it's just keeping it fun. Like if if you get into it and you try too hard and you haven't established where you want to be, then uh, you're not gonna keep doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean it. I mean it for the longevity, as I feel. Everyone like everyone starts out to be in it for the long run, but it's, it's how many actually stick it out. I'm hoping that if I take steps early, uh, even if I do, say, take a year off and play with pot calls for a year, I'm still in that realm, and I'm still around all of that.
0: Bro, I can tell you a guy that freaking... he, The first thing I remember seeing him turn was a duck call, and then got into... Or maybe he did a couple pot calls before that, but he freaking was gonna get into when i sold most of my stuff to him when i first got out and it was jesse jefferson he was trying to get into duck calls he turned a few and they were freaking sweet and then he got into pot calls and dude that guy has taken off like you know name any any call maker that's been the hot call maker of the year the last couple of years like his freaking pot calls are insane really get i
1: have it. not seen any from him uh
0: yeah yeah check it i don't Jesse, let me plug your actual name. His pot calls are insane. He does a bunch of cool stuff. It's like four C's, I think. Jesse Jefferson. Sorry, this is really bad dead air time, but I want to get the correct name of his Insta. God bless. Um, While I'm looking for it. I don't know. I can't multitask. That's the uh, the good thing about being simple. Ah, uh,
1: well, I found his actual Instagram, but not his calls.
0: Jesse Jefferson. Maybe he doesn't have a freaking Instagram, man. I he had a. I know he has a page. What is it? It's been so long since I've looked at it. But yeah, he got into these crazy pot calls, and he man i'm sure it's been done a bunch of times but he's one of the first guys that i ever saw it's crooked C- crooked creek custom creations force 4- 4c he just posted his logo but i cannot find his freaking page
1: i'll give him a look up after this and check him out because like i said at some point i might try him. you know i've gotten to meet um a bunch of call makers uh that are kind of more doing it on the high end over the past couple of years um Not necessarily, you know, like guys like John Stevens level, but guys that are doing it full time and out of their shop that are, you know, trying to bring a full line of calls in. Um, There's a a gentleman out of Alabama with, um, oh, I can't think of his name now, Houndstooth Custom Calls, and he's doing pot calls and box calls, and he's got a duck call line, and he makes the best owl hooter out there. Uh, Meeting guys like those that are, Trying to make it full time, but have a, a wide variety is a very interesting thing. You know, Rolling Thunder's based here out of Memphis. Buck Gardner's based out of here out of Memphis. Gotten to meet people that work for both of those organizations and see the way that they run things and they handle things. And it's a very corporate manner that does not fit what I want out of it. Yeah, yeah, it's.
0: You have to when you start going corporate with stuff and try to turn it into a big business. Like you don't get to do all the fun stuff. that make custom call makers, you know, custom. And uh, you know, there's a lot of fun. I think I finally found a picture of some of adjustee calls. I sent it to you text message here. It is uh, it's C four. Crooked Creek custom calls, and for some le- reason, I just lost them. So I'm going to hit pause real quick. So you're saying the, the corporate stuff. I don't know what it sounds like on the podcast, but uh, you're saying the corporate stuff isn't what you want to do. And what I was saying right before that um, when it disconnected was that you lose a lot of the creativity that you have when you try to make it a corporate thing. And that's what's so cool about John, uh, John Stevens doing his stuff is you know r&t can do all of their stuff where they have all of their good call line and all that good stuff and everybody you know in the shop is working on calls there but he can go in there inside of the freaking r&t shop crank it up and start doing some custom stuff and it's like you get that you get to exercise that outlet
1: he is you know he gets the best of both worlds where you know if you want the a call out there to be mass produced you know like like the 2b mondo or any of the 2b stuff and then you know you know his personal stuff it's really just the best of both worlds that i think a lot of people wish they could do but i don't think anyone will ever do it to the level he's he has created for himself
0: yeah it's it's definitely been a uh very cool thing it you know rnt has always been one of the biggest out there in the world if not the biggest but to see the evolution of it in the last couple years with that new shop man and to see what
1: he has done with it you know introducing new call lines getting getting uh jim ronquest involved and, and coming out with the mondo and and his leadership behind it and the marketing behind it has just grown them to be a whole new level
0: well, and it you know all that stuff is is crazy, and what they've done. The coolest thing about him that is his uh, his collecting side of things. That dude is a waterfowl freaking historian.
1: I I love going into this shop. I hunt over there a couple times a year, so I usually stop by to see as the collection rotates out and just looking at all the calls in there. And some of the events he'll do, like a call makers and collectors social, where he'll bring out some of his own collection, and to get to see some of his stuff is just absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah, that's that's the fascinating stuff, and uh, you know, it's it's like waterfowl as a whole. You have. The two, you know, okay, not two genres, but you have the genres of waterfowl. You have the the team guys that they want to be on every staff, and everybody knows them. All the younger kids, like everybody wanted to be at one point in time. And then you have this historian, you know, group of freaking waterfowlers that they want to hunt sub-gages. They want to wear the, you know, Filson's a popular name now, but that type of, you know, camo where it's not everything SIGCA. There's nothing wrong with SIGCA. It's freaking awesome, but... You know that old school mentality. We want to collect old decoys. We want to collect old calls. We want to know about, you know, stuff and hunt minimalistically. Like, it, it's really cool to see just the diversity and all of that.
1: Oh, I love seeing that. Like, like the uh, like Dale Bourdon's, um Cane calls and his hunting he does with his hand car decoys to see that kind of stuff, and then all the way up to you know people at the highest level where they're, they're riding thirty thousand dollar boats and they're on a hundred thousand dollar property to see that you can do it from each end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, it's a a wide diverse group, and that's what makes it so uh, so unique. And there's a place for everybody in it. Absolutely. Well, brother, I appreciate you jumping on here tonight, man. uh, I know you had a a long day of work, and uh, I just wanted to say thank you for getting on here, man. It's been enjoyable.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I've been a a fan since you started, and I've enjoyed all of them, and glad to have been a part of one.
0: Thank you, man. It's uh, honors on this side, for sure.
1: All right, Chris. I'll talk to you later. All
0: right, buddy. Take care. Tyler Baker, ladies and gentlemen, um, look up his stuff, man. He, like he said, he's not looking to do a whole lot, but uh, look up his stuff, check it out. Let him uh, fill up those order books if he wants to. Um, yeah, if you're still listening, get yourself a Turd of the Duck Call, Unstable Calls, or any of the great call makers that we've had on here. Support the guys that you listen to. Um, yeah, see ya.